Everyone, welcome to Cooldowns with Colin. I'm here with an old college teammate of mine, a steeplechase runner, turned professional triathlete, turned uh, executive in the triathlon industry, turned coach at Stanford University. This is Dylan Sorensen. Dylan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Colin. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> Thank you, Dylan. Um, so I like to start off these interviews by asking when you considered yourself a runner for the first time. I know you played basketball a lot growing up, and it was a passion of yours. When did you start to focus on running and consider yourself a runner? That is a, that's a good question. So, yeah, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and a uh, small suburb on the north side called Zionsville. Go Eagles. Um, basketball is everything in the state of Indiana. We had a few hundred people try out for our high school team every year, and... It was the most highly coveted sport of which you could participate in as an athlete, uh, and that's definitely what my my focus was on a lot. Um, however, I started running cross country in eighth grade, and I, I started doing track as well. So to keep in shape for basketball when it wasn't well, the winter time, I, I started running. Um, but all the way up through even my all the way through my junior year of high school, I played basketball still, um, and I would just run during the fall and in the spring just because I it thought it helped me for basketball, and I was pretty good at it. Um, and <laughs> heading into, even when my junior year was ending, I, I still was debating if I wanted to try and play basketball at a D3 school or seriously commit to running and, and play at, a, or run at Division One school. And it was a tough decision because that's how much I love basketball. But <laughs> I think over the summer, um, I visited a couple colleges and I, I visited a small D3 school in Indiana called Anderson University for basketball. And I visited the University of Oregon for running. And they were two very different things. I bet. And I, I decided that summer that I thought running was the right path for me. And so that my senior year started, I didn't play basketball my senior year. And then that's kind of really when I started focusing in on running and took off, yeah. And you wound up at Georgetown University under Pat Henner. Um, what was the decision like to go there? Was it uh, was a lot of it based on uh, how you felt you connected with Coach Henner uh, or with the team? Um, or what, what kind of uh, went into that decision? Yeah, obviously it's a huge decision, Um as I said, I'm from the Midwest, and so I I was okay with going far away for school, but I also was looking at Indiana University. That was one of the schools I was looking at at the time, which has still their coach by a man named Ron Helmer, who's done a great job there. But he actually just had transitioned from Georgetown to Indiana maybe a year before I was being recruited, and um, they had... <laughs> Some very similar systems, and I was the ultimately my choice came down to between Indiana and Georgetown, and a big part. Uh, I, I really respect both of those guys, but I I felt like I connected very well with with Pat Henner, who who is the, going to be my coach. Um, so that was a huge role in it. I also wanted to study business and uh, even more specializing in in business and international something or other. And Georgetown had great programs for that. On my visit, which was the first time I was ever in Washington, D.C., 
it was beautiful weather and we went down to the monuments to play wiffle ball and I thought it was amazing and <laughs> um, so that that helped too uh, and then there was also kind of around the time when I was trying to decide I started getting pretty good at running and everybody on my father's side of the family went to the University of Oregon so I was starting to talk to the coaches there uh, I, I liked it but I didn't like how the academic pieces were missing and I knew what the weather was like there because I visited my grandparents several times and so um, at the end of the day the, the guys on the team definitely were a big part of it. Um, I, I loved the, the Catholic Christian identity of the school uh, but the biggest, the biggest piece was that Pat Henner believed in me and I trusted him. I knew he had done great things with people who were like me who hadn't had a huge background in the sport uh, and I I wanted to dive into that. And when Henry was recruiting you, did you guys talk about the steeplechase then, or was that something that kind of emerged organically because Henner likes coaching steeplechase guys and you're an athletic guy and fairly durable, and so it kind of was a fit after you got there, or was that the plan going in? No, I, every, every coach that I talked to, I made it clear that I wanted to run the steeplechase. Uh, I had known a guy by the name of... Jordan Fife, who was a counselor at a running camp I went to, who was a good steeplechaser, and he played basketball in high school in Indiana, and um, I thought that watching the event, I thought I just thought I could be good at it, and I thought it looked fun, and it wasn't just running, it was something else, but it was still obviously in, in running, so uh, that was something we talked about right off the bat, and I think that only made coaches happier, because there probably aren't that many kids who are yearning to do the steeplechase, but uh, I was certainly one of them. And so you had a good five years at Georgetown. Um, I think two-time All-American in the steeplechase. Um, and uh, at, at the beginning of your college career, correct me if I'm wrong, but your goal was to become a professional runner. So, is that correct? Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, so then going into your fifth year of eligibility, um, what were your thoughts about the future after Georgetown? Was it still focused on being a professional runner, or were you looking around at, at other options? So it's a heavy question, for sure. Um, I think anybody who was running in college at a great program and their goal for a long time has been trying to become more than just that level. You get into a very deep emotional relationship with the sport of running. And um, heading into my my final year, I was starting a master's program, and um, it only meant I only had class two nights a week, and I, so I had a lot of time on my hands outside of practice. But I definitely wanted to keep running, but I also it was interesting. I was starting to run well. I had the best track season I had ever had the spring a few months prior and the the lack of structure in my life that fall led to me having a few moments where I, I was really reflecting because I, I probably because I had a lot of time but I could really sense that if if running was going well so say I had a good not even had a good workout but felt good in the workout or didn't totally led to me my mood of of how I felt about myself, not necessarily, oh, I'm I'm 
I'm doing really poorly or not, but just being being happy from a like personal standpoint. And I also was struggling a bit with some some health issues which weren't apparent enough for me to think that I needed to stop running in any way at the time, but um I was I was healthy and I was running well in training and um relatively well in in races. Um and so I definitely was not I honestly I wasn't really thinking about the future. I knew that if I did what I wanted to do and could do then what whatever was going to happen would work out. Um and and honestly I didn't even know what that was at the time. Um but I knew that I knew some people in running and I knew people that were kind of at my level at that point that were still running and so I knew you know if I had a breakout year then maybe I could have some great options if not then maybe I could have some okay options and I would cross that bridge when I got there but one of the many things that I think Pat Henner taught me was that you can't worry about what's going to happen if something happens before it you have to just in order to make the best situation happen for yourself in the future you have to try as hard as you can to get better every day and so that's kind of was my attitude and that's why I didn't interview for jobs or didn't end up taking the LSAT and apply to law school like I was thinking of doing or doing lots of things because I knew that it, I wanted to at that time run and so if I just did my best job in that moment then I was going to I was going to put myself in a situation where maybe I would have opportunities but even if not then I wouldn't have anything to look back on and regret that I didn't do or have an excuse like oh well you know, I, I studied too much or I partied too much when I was so glad. Maybe that's why I'll keep going. Yeah, and I, I think that's two things that I that I really respect about you. And the first is the ability to be comfortable in the moment when you don't know what, what the future holds. And the second is the decisiveness to know when an opportunity is something that you want to do. And I think that that's what happened when the opportunity to work with USA Triathlon came, which I think was in the spring of your of your fifth year. Um, and from my perspective, I was two years younger than you at the time. So starting to think about after running, and I, I'm, I have a different personality than you, and I, I'm someone who often thinks about the future and tries to plan. Um, so I think in that moment, I really respected the fact that you saw this opportunity with USA Triathlon and kind of jumped at it and didn't really seem to have any second thoughts. What was that decision process like for you? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we could have a whole other talk about that. But um, in, so in January of my fifth year, so just a few months, five months before I was going to graduate and be finished, Excuse me. I received a call from a woman named Barb Lindquist, who is a talent identification um, employee of USA Triathlon, and her role is to try and find talented collegiate runners and or swimmers who she believes has the body type and have had performance consummate with if given the opportunity to train at a high level for a couple of years, become potentially an international medalist at the, at the Olympic games. Um, so she reached out to me. She, she swam at Stanford actually was several times an all American and an NCAA champion on the team. And, 
um, she called me and, and said, hey, Dylan, um, I know Pat Henner, and he told me that you would be somebody who, who could be good at triathlon. Do you have, what's your background in cycling and swimming? And I was like, Barb, are you sure you call the right person? Because I, I, have, I don't have a background in either. Uh, I never swam competitively growing up. And I, I mean, I, I'm confident that I could keep myself afloat and get from one end of the pool to the other, but never swam in a, on a team or in a meet. And I also, aside from biking to and from my friends' houses, which I did a lot to get around, I never biked. I never have clipped into pedals on a bike. I've never been on a road bike with drop handlebars. Um, and she was like, yeah, well, you know, it's okay. You run the steeplechase, which is a very kind of endurance, but you need power to do it event. And that's actually really good for cycling. Um, how big are you? And so I told her my height and weight. I was like, oh, I'm 6'2", and I'm about 165 to 170, depending on the time of the year. She's like, oh, so you're really big for a runner then. And I was like, yeah, I am. And I thought I thought that wasn't a good thing at the time. <laughs> but uh, I, I always had guys giving me a hard time about being big because I'm big for a distance runner. But she was like, yeah, no, that's great. Um, swimmers, you, you kind of need to be bigger, so need to have some more muscle mass and things like that. And I was like, really? She was like, yeah. So she, she sent me some information and um, she was like, I, I would encourage you to try and research the sport and see what draft legal triathlon is all about, which is means that you can draft on the bike portion of the event. Um, and she was like, I, I honestly, you have the same body type as the best people in the world at this. And if you started doing triathlon, Obviously, it would, it would be a process of you getting to that point with us where we would fully fund you and put you into our Olympic development program. But if you get to that point, then you're going to have limitless resources, and I promise that you will improve. But you definitely need to make sure you want to do it, and we need to do some swim tests and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, well, I'm flattered. Um, thanks. I have to go to an indoor track meet at Penn State now, but I will do some research and get back to you. So I spent the next few weeks looking up triathlon things and the London Olympics had happened a couple of years previous to that. So I was able to find some footage of that race and I always, the kind of workouts that I always excelled at or maybe just enjoyed more than others in running were the ones that we were constantly doing other things. Maybe we would do threshold intervals for one part of it and then faster stuff in another, maybe did some hill stuff. So I, I realized in triathlon, you're always doing different things and you switch, you, you stay focused on what you're doing in that moment, but then boom, something else is coming up and you have to excel as much as you can in that. And so I also started realizing, hey, she was right. I, I am actually the same size as these people. They're not tiny distance runners. Um, and running was going relatively well, I would say at the time, um, but I, I was still struggling a bit with these health issues that were just making training not that fun. Um, and if anybody has done an endurance sport, they know that if they do not enjoy the training, then it is a brutal <laughs> task in which to undertake. Um, if you don't, if you don't like running for 70 minutes a day and you're doing it for 70 minutes a day, it becomes significantly harder than if, than if one does enjoy it. So I definitely, I was enjoying it, but I was not enjoying it nearly as much as one should be, probably. And so I was excited for track season, and I was running okay, but I was also starting to get really excited about this triathlon thing. And so I called Barb back, and I said, you know what, Barb, I think I want to give this a shot. So what do I need to do from a swimming perspective? 
Um, she had mentioned that she was going to have a camp that summer for a couple weeks at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, and that if I did a swim test, which was a 100 and then 400, um, based on what I swam, then she would invite me to the camp, and then I could get a much better understanding of the sport, as I'd be around people that were already in the sport, and her and other coaches that were there uh, to give some great feedback, from which I could kind of springboard into maybe joining this group. So uh, she told me to do this swim test, and so I did it, and actually you you did it with uh, me, yeah, if, if you I, recall. I do recall, yeah. And I, I recall being there for one of your first <laughs> swims and yeah. and being able to swim faster than you, and then coming again for the swim test and decidedly not being able to swim <laughs> well, faster than you. That was a, a surprise to both of us. <laughs> I think I wanted to swim faster than a minute and 15 seconds or something in the 100, and I swam a minute and four seconds or something like that. I don't know. But in any case, it went well enough where Barb was surprised and even more so than she thought she would be. And so she was like, that's perfect. You're coming to the camp if you want, which was the week after the USA Championships in track and field. So it was the first or second week in July when it started. Um, So then I, I just carried on my track season and I had more success than I ever had before. I won the biggest championships in the steeplechase. I won the IC4A championships in the steeplechase. I made it to the national championships. And while I didn't do as well as I wanted to there because I had relatively high goals, I still did well. And and I got I qualified for the USA championships and was the second best college finisher there. And so I, I kind of checked a lot of boxes of, of goals. Um, that most runners probably have in their careers, especially as they're when they're in college, and so that was that was a fun time. Um, and the day after I ran my last race, which Evan Jagger was in my my heat, oh, which was kind of fun, even though he he torched me the last couple laps. He uh, to do that. I I started training for triathlon, and then long story short, I went to this camp and I was. I was selected upon conclusion of the camp to kind of continue with this process. And Barb Lindquist, that woman that I previously mentioned, started coaching me actually. And then she coached me for a couple months until I went to another Olympic training center in San Diego to meet the Olympic development team, which had a couple guys and a few girls. And I had a week long tryout period. And then at the end of that, the coach said, okay, uh, if you, if you go home and take six weeks and you get, you do a swim time trial at the end of six weeks and you get faster than this time, then you will, then you'll, you'll be moving out with us the following week and went home, trained diligently. And I swam over a minute faster than I needed to, to get into the group and packed my bags, moved to Scottsdale. And then I was training, racing, living all over the world for a couple of years. And it was, it was fun and hard and challenging, but I loved every minute of it. Yeah. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's a lot of places we can go here. Um, I, I'm interested in just briefly hearing you talk about some of the similarities and differences between triathlon training and running training and specifically what some of the challenges were transitioning from a runner into a triathlete, um, habits that had to be changed, um, and aspects of training that all of a sudden became much more challenging than they were 
uh, for running training. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is I couldn't say anything without saying how humbling it was in the beginning because I went from at the end of my track. See, I was, a, I was as good as I ever was in running. I was one of the best college guys in one specific event in the country to the following week being crushed in the pool by 12-year-old girls and 80-year-old men because I, I, had, I was horrible at swimming. Terrible. But I was in amazing shape from a physical perspective. Swimming, though, requires a lot of technique-based work that comes with swimming a lot for a long period of time, which turns into muscle memory, and then you don't really need to think about it anymore. But uh, there was a lot that I needed to learn from a swimming perspective, and so that was the first challenge, I would say. That being said, it was incredibly fun because I was getting better. In the beginning, I was getting better every day from the start of a practice to the end of a practice, but... I mean, the whole time I was swimming for the next two two or three years, I was getting better pretty much every week. And that is something that I hadn't had from running in in years. I mean, how once you get to a certain level in running, you, you might PR one time, set a personal record one time in the span of one year. And that's enough to keep you going for another year because the feeling you get when that happens is so uplifting. But, I mean, when you... In swimming, you can do a time trial or or whatever you're going to do almost every day because it's not impact-based. And I, I, I would do a lot of those for our training, and I would be faster every time I did them, literally every time. And it was super fun. Um, I also didn't have any immediate um, injury problems or anything like that. So it was just I would try as hard as I could, and whatever result I had would be what I, what I had that day. And so that was really fun. There were no um, tactics involved like in running a race. Um, so the first several months were all about learning the new sports of cycling and swimming. And actually cycling, I took to relatively quickly. I had um, a lot of help from a lot of people, but um, that was actually very similar to, to running in many ways, but also um, the steeplechase actually, because in cycling, when you're in a group and you are, are racing, you are constantly uh, out of rhythm. And you're constantly, one second, you're riding as hard as you can. The next, you're not pedaling at all because you're riding faster than the person in front of you and you need to not hit them. So that I actually didn't struggle with too much. However, the biggest thing I struggled with in cycling was that the time you spend in training is significantly more per session than it is in running. So, for instance, the shortest ride that I would go on, even from the start, was 60 minutes. And when you're running, if you do a 60-minute easy run, that's a pretty solid work. Like it's a pretty solid run. It it takes a good amount out of you. Um, and I would say most people aren't going to even do two 60-minute runs in a day. Maybe you do a 30-minute run or something in addition to that. But um, so that was the shortest, and often. I, I would have a three to four hour ride one day of the week. And that wasn't even my only training for the day. So I think one of the biggest challenges in terms of training once I started getting going with triathlon was just the the load of the amount of time and, and the volume that I was spending 
with my heart rate over 120 beats per minute every day. Um, because, so say I, I was running, you know, 75 to 80 miles a week, which truly isn't that much for a college runner, distance runner. Um, so that's probably spending 11 or 12 hours of running on a, a week, right? But I, we got up to 35 hours a week of training in triathlon and that's not eating or getting ready to train or what that's being on your bike, being in the pool, actually swimming a set, that's running on your feet. So there were days that I had seven or eight hours of training in the day, and it just was unfathomable. It took me probably six to eight months before I really started to be able to cope with it. And I not only physically was coping with it, but also mentally it wasn't so taxing. Um, because on a bike, if you're going for four hours, you can't zone out like you can when you're running. Because <laughs> if you're going 30 miles an hour down a hill and you hit something, you know, might not get back up when you fall. So um, I think those are a couple of the big challenges. One, going from being so, I hesitate to say that I was so good at it, but being relatively accomplished at one thing and, and good at something to being the antithesis of that and having to scrap and learn the fundamentals before you can learn anything else. Those are probably the two hardest things that I had to do. Yeah, um, and I think we could we could do a whole other podcast about your triathlon career and talk about races that that you did. Um, but I I do want to talk a bit about coaching as well, about your your current job. So you moved from being a professional triathlete to still training at a high level while working for a major league triathlon, and from there, as I understand it, you got contacted by, by Stanford, by, um, coach Melt about an open position. Um, so what was, what was the decision like to, to move out here, uh, and start coaching? Yeah. So, um, as Colin mentioned, I spent the last eight months of the time that I was doing triathlon helping out with major league triathlon, which is a, uh, a young startup that has a professional, league of really short, exciting format of triathlon that will actually be featured in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Daniel Cassidy and Sarah Cassidy started that company and they live in, in the company's based in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I was out there training with um, some, some wonderful people and also spending a lot of time with them as we were really trying to fight to, to grow the sport from that perspective. And we put on professional league of that event, which is just a super short, fast-paced triathlon relay race that have both genders featured on the same team. Um, so I had a, a great experience with both of them, and I, I'm so glad that I did it, and I I loved it. Um, so I started that in November of 2016, and then I, we were doing. It was it was so fun. We were. I mean, we worked a ton, but. It was awesome. We were trying to help grow the sport and create this, to help foster the growth of this new event within the sport. And I was in charge of all of the athletes that we had in our league. And I, I mean, it was a startup, so we did everything, all of us. But it was incredibly fun. And so I moved out there in November. And then in June, I got a call. In late June, I got a call from Chris Miltenberg, who's the director of the 
track and field and cross country program at Stanford University and who was the head women's coach when I was at Georgetown for the first three years as well. Um, so I've, I've known him for quite a while, but I got a call from him and he was saying, hey, um, my assistant on the distance side, which would be in charge of cross country and, and track and field, helping him out coach that, is is taking a head position at Purdue University and we're going to miss him and are sad to see him go, but um, I'd love to talk to you and see if your interest would be piqued about potentially taking this job. And I was kind of, well, firstly, I was flattered that he thought of me, but secondly, I was shocked because we were actually in the middle of the season with this major league triathlon um, <laughs> company. And I, I absolutely loved it. I loved every minute of working with Dan Cassidy and, and Sarah I still keep in touch with them. And, um, <laughs> and so I didn't, I didn't really quite know what, what to do, but I also knew that I had been thinking about coaching ever since the first year that I was running in college because I had a, a great experience with, with my coach that we've already talked about. But I also, I, every time that he would tell us workouts or be talking to us before races or after races, I was always thinking about what, what I thought or what, what I thought the best thing could be to say, or, you know, maybe I'd change this. And I, I love thinking about training and, you know, going to meets and, and helping try and a big part of what I loved doing was being a part of a team and really like trying to help my teammates run to the best of their capabilities. Um, and, you know, some people need love, some people need a fire to be lit under them and everybody's different, but that's what I love the most about it. And so I was incredibly excited and Stanford is one of the most renowned distance programs in college track and field. Uh, if not the, and uh, so really I I didn't, I couldn't think, I, I thought a lot about it, but it wasn't anything that I was not for one minute incredibly thrilled about the potential for it. So I went in and talked to my boss at the time, Daniel Cassidy, the guy who was the CEO of Major League Triathlon, and I was like, Dan, I got to tell you something, man. <laughs> I got a call from Chris Miltenberg the other day, and he's like, who's Chris Miltenberg? And I was like, well, he's this coach. Um, he's the director of track and field and cross country at Stanford University. And uh, he was a coach when I was in Georgetown, but he just reached out to me asking about my interest in an assistant coaching job at Stanford. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And and I, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to take it, but I the, at, at the minimum, I want to go out there and look and meet the people on the staff, see the facilities, the area in which the university is located and kind of see what I would be working with, who I'd be working with, and then uh, go from there. And he was kind of shocked, and uh, just as I was. And then so um, I went out for a few days and met with the staff, loved that, all of them. Uh, they treated me very well and, and still have to this day. I'm happy to report. But um, So then a few days later, uh, I talked to Chris on the phone and he was happy with how the my potential coworkers perceived me and, and he also enjoyed the time that I spent there. So he offered me the job and I thought about it for about half a second and then I said, yes, I want to do this because I was incredibly excited about it and I know that 
that's something that I'd be really happy doing for the rest of my life. And coaching is is a an incredibly challenging thing for which to get one's foot in the door and to land at a place such as Stanford is one of the most like happy things that has happened to me and I I've I've absolutely loved it we have a a great culture great team and it's full of exciting talented athletes and you know (laughs) no day is easy but every day is worth it and um we're fighting a a great battle that I that I love every day so that's kind of how that happened and I'm curious about your response to a belief that I think is shared by a decent proportion of people involved in the NCAA system that there are certain schools at which uh, success is, if not guaranteed, at least uh, they have a leg up because of the school that they are. And I I think that this belief um, is present a little bit about the University of Oregon, that they have success handed to them because of their relationship with Nike, because of their facilities, because of the athletes that they get. I also think that this belief um, is often centered on on Stanford, that they get the best athletes, have the best facilities, have the most money, and so therefore they have the success that they have. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily a product of, of hard work that other schools have to do. So to me, people seem to make this distinction between what a school like Stanford or Oregon has to do versus what a school like Colorado, for instance, has to do. What, what is your response to, to, that, to that argument or that belief? No, I think that's a totally valid thought, and I, I think a lot of people have that thought. I also think it's incredibly easy to assume when one is not in any specific place from the outside of of what goes on there and what happens just purely by looking at results from a long period of time. And one of those things that comes from that is that we have been very successful. Oregon has been very successful. Um, But I think my response to that, the, the first thing that I would say is that I think regardless of where you are, the way that you have to operate to become successful first has to be via the team and not focusing on any individuals. But, and and I think this kind of more directly will answer your question. I think it's all about the kinds of personalities you have on the team in the environment that your campus offers. And you have to play that. Those are basically your, your hand of cards that, you're dealt. So however fast or slow they've run or motivated or not they are, those are who you have. And obviously you, you are recruiting kids every year, but um, Colorado or Indiana or Wisconsin, they could all end up with any guys that we end up with. Um, but how you choose to help foster them continually improving um, is, is a, is a very tough thing. And so I think that's maybe something that people, um, struggle with is that they, they automatically assume that whoever goes to Stanford 
is the best recruit in the country, and oftentimes they are, but that it'll just come easy to them. Um, so, as you said, and I, and I think it's it's tough because it's tough to answer as a as a generalism because it's different for every kid that we have. Um, no kid is struggling with the same thing, but I think one of the one of the toughest things, and this is one of the best things about Stanford, is that they have so many incredible resources on hand. Um, and when I say they, I mean all the students that attend the university, that it, it is easy to lose sight of, of, of running and, and it has the, how that was your priority before you went to Stanford. And I'm sure there have been kids who, who went to Stanford who maybe they used running or some other thing as a vehicle to get to Stanford. Um, but obviously my job is to coach runners and I... I hope to coach runners who want to continue to get better at running. And I, I think that you can't be great at everything. I, I, and I, you know, I, I do think Sanford believes one of their credences is that you can be good at everything. And, and I do think you can be good at everything, but I don't think you can be great at everything. So if you want to be excellent at something, then you cannot burn your candle at both ends. So I think a tough thing for our kids is that they have so many things they can do, so many exciting experiences they could do every single day that if they do, if they do even half of them, then they're going to always be exhausted and and they won't be thinking about what the other kids are doing to train and who who are just dying to run and would kill to be in their position. But at the same time, that's that's you know one of the most exciting challenges of my job every day is trying to figure that out. And so. I think everywhere you are, there are going to be challenges, um, whether that is, you know, you need to get, get all your guys a minute faster in the 5K, or you need to make sure your guys aren't studying too much, or you need to make sure they're going to class. Like, it totally depends on where you are, but I think for us, um, we are, we do have a lot of great resources on hand, and so we're, we are, I think the tough, the toughest thing is that we are expected to win, but I would rather be in no other place than an environment in which we were expected to win. Um, that's part of our culture as an athletic department, not just with the track and field and cross country team. I mean, we, I, we, I would argue we are one of the most successful teams in running, but also our athletic department has more national championships than any other athletic department does. We have 116 now, and I'm sure we'll keep adding to that tally as this year's going on, but, um, just this year, both of our men's and women's cross country teams were fourth place at the national championships, which is amazing. But we were one of the worst fall sports on both sides. Um, women's water polo won the national championship. Men's soccer won the national championship. Women's soccer won the national championship. And then women's swimming just won the national championship. And we won the Pac-12 championship uh, and got fourth place at the national championships. But, you know, it's like, oh, why didn't we win? <laughs> So it's interesting, and um, you know, at a lot of places that would that would be a win, and um, and I and I think for our team this year, they did a great job at the meet, and we were thrilled with them. And I think you know our athletic department is too, but it's a luxury that we always expect a national championship from from afar, even within your own athletic department when you're obviously not out there every day like other coaches. Oh, you got fourth, you guys got second last year. What what happened? And you're like, well. We have a different team now, but you know we we just still did a good job, and so 
Um, there's a lot of kind of banter that goes back and forth there, but it's it's certainly a, a unique place to be, and every place has their struggles, but I think um, maybe our success isn't necessarily viewed as success because it's expected. Um, so whenever we don't succeed, people like to kind of focus on that, and, and that's okay. They can do that, but... Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly an interesting place in which to operate. Yeah, and I like that answer. I think what I'm hearing is that coaching anywhere, any athlete, is a challenge. And the exact challenge that you're presented with depends on, on where you are. Uh, but that the act of coaching a distance runner and the act of, of being a distance runner is, is just a challenging thing to do. And so with the challenge that's presented to you of coaching these athletes... How are you drawing from the wisdom that you've gleaned from your coaches in the past to to kind of transmit that to to your present athletes? I mean, we've talked about Pat Henner, we've talked about Barb, and referenced some of your other triathlon coaches, and and now you're you're working under under Chris Miltenberg. So what have you learned from each of them, and and how are you putting that into practice in in what you do every day? I. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I feel extremely fortunate that I've been able to work with some of who I believe to be the, the best coaches in the world and who have ex- extraordinarily positively impacted my life. Um, so in addition to those those two, I guess we've mentioned, I, I've also, Jared Evans was my main coach in triathlon for a couple of years and um, he's not an Australian guy. He was he did was great uh and then bobby mcgee was our our running kind of specific coach for triathlon as well he was actually the coach of the 1996 olympic marathon champion he's a south african guy and is very well versed in sports psychology as well as running physiology um but i kind of have taken things from all of them as well as other people that I've read about and my, my experiences of how I responded to the way I was coached um, to try and adapt every single one of my, I guess, coaching moments, I don't know what you'd call it, a little differently to all of the kids because I think that it's you can't expect everybody to interpret a message you give the same. So... I tailor everything to each one of the athletes that I coach because they're all different. Um, but that being said, I think I, I've taken a lot from a lot of people and um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave a lot of stuff out, I guess. But um, no, so I mean, moments of patience, professionalism, humility, empathy, I think those are some of the, the best traits that I've learned and and have had but also (laughs) really believing in somebody and getting to know them well as a person is you know one of the most important things that that I learned from all of my coaches and I would not be where I am today if if I didn't know that they believed in me when they were coaching me so I think that's probably the basis and and I and I don't just blindly believe in somebody I have to get to know them really well to do that and I'm fortunate enough to believe in every one of the guys that I that I coach now so that's great um but it's tough to answer your question in a a simple statement I guess so 
I guess maybe a better way of asking the question is, can you think of any coaching moments where you were the athlete, where uh, you felt like uh, it was a great coaching moment, that that the action that the coach took, either the words that they said, the what they did physically, um, their, their tone of voice um, that encouraged you or, or made you a better athlete? Yeah, I can think of hundreds of moments that were like that. Um, and I think, so, so something that, let me try and maybe put something out there from, from maybe all of my experiences. So going from this current state to back, um, when I was still doing triathlon, Jared Evans was a great motivator, but he was also extremely realistic. So, and I loved that. So what I mean by that is you would do a session, maybe, for instance, you do a, a swimming workout or something, and he'd be really fired up about it, really excited, and but at the same time, and if it went well, obviously, but you'd be like, okay, well, how does that stack up against what I would need to do to be, you know, racing in the Olympics? And he'd be like, well, you know, you averaged... 210 for this set of 200s and you need to average 157 so you're pretty far off mate <laughs> so jared did a great job of keeping the expectations realistic and in keeping you from getting too ahead of yourself in, in any given moment pat henner one of the or, uh, sorry, i'm jumping ahead so bobby mcgee one of the best things that he would do that i also loved was anytime we were going to go to a race I would always receive in wherever I was whether I was in China or Barbados or the Czech Republic or San Diego wherever I was I would get an email from him the morning of the race and he would just be pumping me up and saying that he believed in me and how I needed to keep my emotions in check throughout the race and remember the fundamentals of what I had had done in training to get through each segment of the race, which is getting everything set up for the race, the swim start, the middle, the finish of the swim, first transition, first five minutes on the bike, how you react to tactics on the bike, and how you enter the second transition, the second transition, and then the whole five or ten kilometers of the run. So there's a lot of things, but um, that was a really good reminder of, okay, I had done all this, maybe I had done two months of training at any given time just for one race. And I was there and I was ready to race and he was kind of reminding me, okay, just focus on what you need to do in each section. And if you do that, everything will take care of itself. And on top of that, you're ready to do it. And I know you are. So having somebody else kind of pump you up as well as tempering your grandiose thoughts into just taking each bit of a race as it comes was something that I really valued from, from Bobby. Um, so backing up from that, um, Barb Lindquist was great. I, that she's actually the only female coach that I've ever had before. And we worked very well together. Um, she would, uh, she would give me workouts that I ne I thought I couldn't do, 
but I was always able to do them. <laughs> and um, she would get so excited because she knew I could, and she also knew that I didn't think I could do them. But she would never say, I told you so. She would just be thrilled that I did them. And she was able to see me progress from zero to being capable of joining the Olympic Development Group, which was a big difference. <laughs> and um, I, I really enjoyed communicating with her. I, I grew up around a lot of girls, so I think I communicate <laughs> well in some instances <laughs> with girls. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, no, she was great because I think we... The, she's probably the person with whom I best communicated with in, in any coach athlete relationship. So that was, that was really good. Um, and then back, I mean, Pat Henner, gosh, I mean, I'm a million things. I could hard, yeah, hard, out, to, hard to pick one. I think one good thing that Pat Henner did was, and this kind of goes back to keeping expectations realistic as well, is that I had huge goals when the, the, from the first day that I walked onto campus with running and, and I wanted them right now. I wanted him yesterday, but he he was very good at 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 being blunt and saying, Dylan, this you're not going to break four minutes in the mile tomorrow. You you haven't broken four ten yet, so let's let's run four oh eight first, and let's just focus on that. Let's just focus on practice tomorrow. How about that? And so he he did a great job of keeping me motivated and and realizing that. Even if I wasn't running as fast as I wanted to be, that was if I was improving, then I was making my way towards where I wanted to be, and there was no timeline of of when I would get there, and that's okay. Um, so he he did a great job of of keeping me kind of tempered a little bit and not letting my eyes get too big. Um, yeah, and then even further back, I guess my high school coach, Gabe Porus. He he was a, just a great guy, and and <laughs> I would I would run a race, and before the race, I, I think a valuable thing that he gave to me was that he let me do a lot of what I wanted to do. So before the race, he'd be like, "Hey, what do you want to do in the race today?" And I'd tell him, and and that was kind of a process of me having to tell somebody else my goals for the day and how I wanted to go about achieving them. So I had to be organized, and then afterwards, he'd be like, "What do you think?" And then I'd talk about, oh, I wasn't happy or I was happy. And then he was like, okay. And and we'd move forward and created a game plan for the next one. But um, he was, like, very empowering and let me do a lot, which I think actually set me up to be maybe a little bit more mature than some of the other people that I was running with at the time who had had more hands-on coaches because um, mine was certainly not. So, yeah, those are some some good moments that I think I, I hope to be able to replicate in some instances moving forward. And what have you seen and learned from Chris Miltenberg in the the past six or so months since you've came onto campus here? Oh, I've, I've learned a ton from Chris Miltenberg. He's been a phenomenal person for which to work uh, for, with, and as well as the other five people on our staff. Um, we have a lights out group of coaches and the best meet director and director of operations in the business, I believe. Um, I so I, I've, I've learned a lot from all of them. Um, specifically about Chris, I think he does a phenomenal job of managing not only the people that he employs, but also all 96 of the athletes that are on the team. He 
knows every single one of their names, knows a ton of things about each person, and he does a really good job of staying on top of everything that goes into putting on a college track and field and cross country program, which is a lot of th- are a lot of things meets practices of which there are like 18 different practices going on a day from through all the event groups and people that have class conflicts you're in the weight room you're out on the track you're at baylands you're in the forest running there's all all kinds of things going on but he always knows what's going on and he has to plan a lot for that but that is an incredibly important role i believe in in knowing that your coach believes in you is uh, they have to know what you're doing. <laughs> so I, that's one thing I've learned. I've learned a lot about how he operates in terms of setting up the program. And um, it's one of the most successful programs in college track and field. So um, I figure that if I'm learning how to do that, then that's, uh, that's a pretty good thing to learn. <laughs> um, I also think he does a phenomenal job of inspiring the athletes that he coaches. So, on on the across the whole team uh, we have team meetings every week and he does a great job of you know maybe sometimes he needs to be a little bit harsh but also he does an incredible job of instilling the core values that our our team relies on and operates under every single day to try and be the best team that they can be and um it's it's easy i think to lose sight of how you got good in the first place but I think he does a great job of maintaining kind of a a blue collar attitude in in a white collar environment and that's the only way that you keep getting better so um yeah I've I've learned a ton from him but that those are probably some of the most simply put things I think we could we could keep on going but I think we're out of time um so thank you very much for coming on the podcast Dylan. thanks for having me call i appreciate it